The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we have about uh, high 80s online, 88 online, and maybe 55 or so people in the room. Yeah, and it's it is truly a blessing, you know, whether you're doing it just with one friend or a larger group like this, but there's something about gathering and uh, meeting together with this interest in the mind or the heart. And clearly, I mean, even though it's not our habit, clearly this is relevant to get interested in the mind. Because so much of our experience as a human being is actually what we're meeting more than anything. We're meeting the meaning that our mind is creating, constructing. That's what, you know, we're meeting. Like you ask your friend, how was Saturday? And mostly what they're going to report is like the thoughts they had about Saturday and the thoughts they have about those thoughts that they had about Saturday, right? And part of what we're doing in practice is we're realizing that the experience we're having can be transformed, not by, you know, this hard no, no more thoughts, no more thoughts about my thoughts, you know, because you see where that goes, just more thoughts. (laughs) Like, I shouldn't be thinking, that's a thought. And on and on, and the tightness that goes with all of that. And it's appropriate for us to kind of wonder, you know, because we hear so much, especially these days, mindfulness, mindful awareness, it's, uh, it's big time. It's actually yeah, surprisingly becoming a big business. You know, there are many apps, some of the apps are valued over billions of dollars <laughs> that are just about meditation and mindfulness. And if you ever go to a bookstore, there are way, way too many books about meditation and Buddhist mindfulness practice and people teach it in all different forms, branding it slightly differently. So it's really out there and I'm not criticizing because generally I think um, it, a lot of that, maybe most of it is quite useful helping people just manage their human life because it's not easy having a human life and a conditioned mind, conditioned by our culture and our upbringing and a body and, of course, relationships with each other. That's a real setup. And if you haven't noticed that, (laughs) we want to know, like, what distractions are you using that you don't notice that it isn't easy being a human being? And I'm certainly not saying that it's all hard because, you know, Some of it's quite beautiful and pleasing, our experience as humans. But it is appropriate for us to wonder, um, now that it is a big thing, you know, what's the big deal about awareness? Because it doesn't sound like much, being aware. And our habitual response is often, I'm already being aware, so stop it. You know, stop talking about awareness. I'm already aware. You're just making a big thing about nothing. And there was an example from the suttas, the discourses um, from the time of the Buddha, where a group of the monks 
for having a conversation at this monastery, Jetta's Grove. And um, they had gathered at the meeting hall and a discussion arose. And here's a quote that's carried down in these discourses over 2,500 years. And somebody was saying, isn't, isn't it amazing, friends? Isn't it astounding? The extent to which mindfulness immersed in the body when developed and pursued is said by the Buddha, who knows, who sees, to be of great fruit and great benefit. And this discussion came to no conclusion. <laughs> I love that. It's like, you know, I, I mean, just stereotypically, a bunch of young monks who don't really know what's up yet, you know, knowing that the Buddha and other of their senior teachers are telling them, you know, mindfulness in the body is the ticket, or just mindfulness generally. And it all sounds right, but then, you know, just chatting together, like, yeah, but what exactly is the big deal? You know, why is it of such great benefit, of such great value? And, of course, it wasn't long before the Buddha came, you know, after his emerging from his seclusion in the evening, he went to the meeting hall, and upon arrival, sat down. He was sitting there, and he addressed the monks, for what topic are you gathered together here? And so they explained, you know, and how they had come to no conclusion. So the Buddha asks the question that he then answers. He says, and how is mindfulness immersed in the body developed? How is it pursued to be of great fruit and great benefit? So this is the kind of response we might want to hear, like, so what is the big deal about our practice? And here's the Buddhist response. And in particular, in terms of the body, being aware, using the body, like in Buddhist, in Buddhist practice, we're really interested in the mind, but actually the, the window into the mind, this may seem contradictory, is awareness of the body. Because the body, embodiment itself, so by embodiment I mean the five physical senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, right? This is all being known in the mind. But it's the relatively concrete part of our experience, sensations being known in the mind. We don't say in the mind, but that's where knowing happens in the mind. That's where feeling happens in the mind. Even something seemingly like, so physical, like me poking myself, you know, we say conventionally, I'm poking myself in my leg and it feels like that, you know, and I describe it. But all of that experience, the me that's poking myself, those are all ideas. And even the sensation is arising in the knowing mind, in the sensitive heart. That's where knowing happens. That's where we know the world. So in this sense... Knowing the mind is knowing our experience, knowing the world, knowing what's up. So he says, There is a case where a practitioner, having gone to the wilderness, to the shade of a tree, to an empty building, right? So these are, that's Buddhist code for a place where you're minimizing your distractions, right? So that you can actually do this, because it's a training. And if we're out in the busyness of our day, we'll get swept away with our habits. We'll be relating and acting in ways we always do. So if we go to the wilderness, to the foot of a big tree, that was sort of their go-to shelter, right, back 2,500 years ago, or 
an empty hut, an empty room, where there are not too many distractions. And this is, the Buddha continues, sitting down, holding one's body upright, establishing mindfulness to the fore. Always mindful one breathes in, mindful one breathes out. So just uh, just to start to realize, using something simple like the breathing process, oh, oh, this is what awareness is, right? Because there's breathing happening. And now, because I've uh, created a situation that's more simple, I can recognize this more subtle truth. Breathing is happening, but there's this knowing. So when breathing in is happening, there's a knowing breathing in is happening. And when breathing out is happening, there can be, I can recognize this knowing breathing out is happening. So whether you call that awareness or mindful awareness or reflective knowing, or, but it's seemingly insignificant, but it's a game changer in terms of learning, learning about our human situation, having a mind and body. It really is a game changer. And when we're not aware, not, it's not about the breath. Remember, the breath is a skillful means to help us recognize something that's relatively subtle, that we have, the mind has this capacity to recognize this is being known. Like right now, if you're feeling self-conscious, or if you're feeling bored, or you're excited about the talk, but whatever it is, isn't it true that you have this capacity to recognize, oh, this experience is being known here and now? Just like we have the capacity to forget which is what we almost always do, right? We're not aware that this is being known. So that you could call being on autopilot. It's not like we're unconscious when we're on autopilot. We're simply not aware of what the mind is doing or what the mind is knowing. There's no reflective knowing. So the Buddha starts with something simple like breathing in. Oh yeah, breathing in is being known. And as that process of breathing out happens, oh, breathing out, just like we could go, sitting's being known, or seeing is being known, or hearing is being known, or thinking is being known. And you see how that opens something up when we're reflectively aware of what the mind is knowing or doing, all of a sudden there's learning. Right? There's what we call in Buddhism clear comprehension. So awareness creates the possibility for clear comprehension, which is a kind of connecting the dots, making sense, not through our analytical process, but more letting the data, like the moments of being aware, tell the story of the way it is. That's what clear comprehension is. And it requires some continuity of present moment awareness for that clear comprehension. And so awareness leads to clear comprehension, which leads to wisdom or the deepening of insight, the deepening of understanding. And that's where the Buddha's going with this mindfulness and immersed in the body. He says, but it's not just with the breath. Breathing, um, you know, you can, when walking, a practitioner discerns, Walking is being known. Mm -hmm. When standing, one discerns 
Standing is being known when sitting one discerns. Sitting is being known when lying down one discerns. Lying down is being known. However the body is disposed, that's how one discerns it. And one remains thus heedful, ardent, resolute. Any memories, resolves related to my likes and dislikes are abandoned. And with their abandoning, the mind gathers, settles inwardly, grows unified. This is how a practitioner develops mindfulness immersed in the body. So that little set of teachings is what we generally call mindfulness of the four postures. It's not just about sitting in our tradi- traditional you know, sitting posture, meditation posture, but standing, lying down, walking, any posture. And he doesn't stop there, right? So our working ground, like the, it may be the breath in a more specific way, but it's really embodiment. So whatever posture we're in, or when going forward, returning, one makes oneself fully alert when looking toward, when looking away, when bending, when extending one's limb, when carrying one's cloak, right? When sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, remaining silent, one makes oneself fully alert. And as one remains heedful, ardent, resolute, any memories, resolves, related to our likes and dislikes are abandoned. And with their abandoning, the mind gathers and settles inwardly. So we're really putting all the emphasis in the being aware of the present moment, what the mind is knowing, and not so much me doing my life, me choosing what to do. So it's that's still going to happen. Choices are going to be made. The personality is going to do what the personality is going to do. But in a sense, we're taking the role of the one who knows what's happening as opposed to the one who's doing what's happening. And again, I mentioned a little early, you know, you know, whenever I cue us to notice like we can be aware now, that it's like this now, that this, this is what the mind is knowing. What is your mind knowing now? It's not that hard for at least a moment to recognize that the mind is knowing and in fact it's knowing this. This is what the mind is sensitive this is the thought that's being known, or this is the sensation or sound, or whatever it is that's predominant. But, um, you know, to have some continuity, there might be some self-consciousness, or our personality will react however it reacts, depending on how we've been conditioned. You know, if you're more of a rebellious type, you might, oh, this is stupid. Buddhism is stupid, right? But the knowing mind can just know that. Oh, Having the thought that this is stupid is like this. Or you might be a really uh, like a devotional type. Oh, this is so beautiful. I'm so glad I came. <laughs> you know, sort of that uh, devotional type. But the practice, wisdom awareness, notices that. Oh, you know, putting my hands together is like this. Being devoted, being inspired is, feels like this. It's being known, right? So whatever our personality does, we're just sort of letting it rip, the personality. Because we're moving from the one who does my life, who makes my choices, because that's going to happen anyway. You'll see. You think, well, if I don't do it, who's going who's to get up in the morning and go to work or take care of the kids? Or... But you'll see. 
life just happens, and that means also a personality just keeps doing what it does. But what we're adding, or not adding, but what we're recalling, remembering, and thereby cultivating, developing, is this capacity to be aware. Oh, this is being known. So whether I'm acting out in an unskillful way or I'm acting in a very skillful way, there can be this knowing. Oh, now it's like this. This is what the mind is knowing. This is what the mind is doing. And just to give us some encouragement, I'll go to the end where the Buddha sort of gives his guarantee. He says, practitioners, whoever develops and pursues mindfulness immersed in the body encompasses whatever skillful qualities are on the side of clear knowing, freedom and release, right? Just as whoever pervades the great ocean with awareness encompasses whatever rivulets flow down into the ocean. In the same way, whoever develops, pursues mindfulness immersed in the body encompasses whatever skillful qualities are on the side of clear knowing. On the other hand, whoever, in whomever, Mindfulness immersed in the body is not developed, not pursued. Mara gains entry. Mara gains a foothold. Mara is sort of, in uh, Buddhism, sort of the personification of ignorance and uh, being stuck, doing the same thing, getting the same result, samsara. Right? It's Mara that those ignorant, unaware patterns that make up our mind, for the most part, that's what we refer to. And the Buddha would often, like when Mara was active, you know, after the Buddha's deepening of insight, he would say, Mara, I see you. But that's not hate, and that's not being afraid, right? Mara, I see you means, oh, defensiveness has been triggered, and I see you, I feel you. This is what's being known. That's how we get some immunity from our unskillful patterns, is we actually have a relationship with them. We see them arise and we see them cease. This is a wonderful little discourse. Again, from the Buddha, the middle link discourses. The Buddha says to Ananda, his attendant, his cousin, longtime attendant, and also Buddhist monk, now how, Ananda, in this training of the awakened ones, is there the unexcelled development of the faculties? So the faculties are confidence in our wisdom, energy, like the ability to persist, awareness, the stability of awareness or concentration, and wisdom. So that's what is meant by the faculties. So this, again, he's going to answer this question, but he's posing it to Ananda, his attendant. Now, how, Ananda, in this training of the awakened ones, the wise folks, the sages, is there an unexcelled development of confidence, persistence, awareness, unification of the mind, that stability of awareness, and wisdom, the deepening of understanding? Then he answers, there is a case where when seeing a form with the eyes, right, seeing a sight with the, with the eyes, but you could, you could substitute any of the six sense gates, hearing a sound with the ears, smelling a smell with the nose, tasting a taste with the mouth, feeling a touch with the skin, or even thinking a thought with the mind. There is a case when sensitivity of whatever we're sensitive to, right, there arises 
what is agreeable or what is disagreeable or a mixture of agreeable and disagreeable, right? And that could be with a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, or a thought. I can have a despicable, disgusting thought, or I can have a really pleasing thought too, right? So he's just saying that, okay, this is what it's like to be a human being. We're sensitive in these six ways. So the sixth way is with our mental activity, right? Just like sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch, and mental activity could be agreeable to us, disagreeable, or a little bit of both. And that is a conditioned, constructed, ordinary, arisen, or dependently co-arisen thing, right? So whatever it is that I see, smell, taste, touch, hear, or think, whatever that is, that sight is, let's just use that, it's arising conditionally, it's codependent. It's a constructed experience. Like, clearly there's something, you know, just on that, <coughs> what we would call the material level, where there's a sensitivity in the eye, something that the eye is sensitive to, but it's being interpreted through all of our past conditioning. Right? I can't look at anybody in the room without all my past experience informing that perception, which is arising in the mind. It's not just the touching of the photons in my eye. That's not what I experience. I experience this codependently arisen construction. And that's what the Buddha is saying here. But he goes, he's going to point to something else here. He says, but this is peaceful, this is exquisite, With that, the arisen agreeable thing or the disagreeable thing or the mixed thing ceases and equanimity takes its stance. Just as a person with good eyes having closed them might open them or having opened them might close them, that is how quickly, how rapidly, how easily, no matter what it refers to, the arisen agreeable thing or disagreeable thing or mixed thing ceases and equanimity takes its stance. In the discipline of the noble ones, of the people with deep insight, this is called the unexcelled development of the faculties with regard to any of the sensitivities we have through the six sense gates. So what the Buddha is saying, this is, it sounds simplistic, but it can happen. And it all relies on this awareness, clear comprehension, deepening of wisdom, which is Whatever I'm seeing something, hearing something, touching something, smelling something, tasting something, thinking something, whether it's agreeable, disagreeable, or mixed, there's no way to avoid, we don't want to avoid that exposure. We want to actually let it in, be awake, be intimate, oh, this is being known. But in that moment of recognition, this is something being known, then he's, the Buddha talks about the sensitivity ceases and is replaced with equanimity. So the way, because I know it's just something being known, there can be this equanimity. Oh, that's a memory being known. That's throbbing in the knee being known. That's humiliation being felt. That's happiness being known. That's a delicious taste being Tasted. But there's something about that 
We say sometimes that it creates a sense of space in the mind, that awareness, clear comprehension, wisdom. That it's not space in the sense of me being distant from my experience as a human being. Because that's a shadow of probably any kind of spiritual practice, is we use ideas, like the idea of equanimity, nothing matters, I'm above it all, right? But we can get really attached to those ideas. And then it creates on the surface a sense of being distant. That's their responsibility. Their choices have led to this. I don't need to be impacted. They don't have to do it with that sing-songy voice like I'm using. But you get the idea. I mean, because when we really see it in ourselves or in others, we realize it's off, right? And that the person, it's understandable because the person is trying to get some immunity from the exposure that comes with being a human being, but they wrongly concluded that the way we get away from the exposure is we deny sensitivity. We We deny exposure. So we imagine not being exposed. We construct an idea, right, that it's over there, that it's not about me. That's their problem. I mean, we even do this with our body. You know, I don't really want to be in my body. So we keep ourselves somewhere else. I mean, not that there is anywhere else, actually, but we just stay unaware. We're not honest. We're not intimate. It's like, I don't go there. (laughs) I don't feel there. And it may be just a particular place in your body where you're holding some unresolved pain or trauma, or maybe your whole body, maybe parts of your life, parts of your family, parts of our world, problems that I I don't... You know, a lot of us, when we're, you know, just conditioned by our culture as a white person, it's like we do that with uh, uh, racial issues, like... It's, it's not my problem. I'm not a racist. And we kind of put it over there so we don't have to feel into what that's like to be living in a world like this, where we have conditioning that we have. We can't help it because we watch TV, <laughs> you know, and read books. And I mean, it's everywhere. It's like the water we breathe. In, and it's not just about racism, it's sexism, it's about class, it's about body size, it's about so much. And what we're learning is to kind of grow roots into that. That's the real spiritual healing. But there's a way not to feel oppressed or burdened by how messy it all is, how broken it all is. And that's this, again, it seems so like, what's the big deal? How could this help? But that awareness, which allows the heart to clearly comprehend, to be intimate, and to understand, which deepens wisdom. And the flavor of this wisdom is the equanimity, is that sense of space, even while being right in the middle of the exposure, not distant. You don't know what to say to your kids, your teenage kids, you know, the screaming this or that, or feeling oppressed by the parents laying down the law of the land in the house, or whatever it might be, Interestingly, like being really capable 
of recognizing, oh, it feels like this now. It looks like this now. It is like this now. You'll see that that there's some real space. It doesn't mean you know what to say to your teenager or what you need to do with that problem at work or with your, your lover or whatever it might be. But it means that there's some balance and equanimity and intimacy and release even right in the middle of the brokenness, in the not knowing. Because we think that everything has to be resolved in pretty before we can... We always do that, don't we? We postpone peace and freedom until everything is perfect, (laughs) which is never. (laughs) And it will never be that way. I mean, that doesn't mean we don't strive to address injustice or meet people's needs who are hurting. But, but why would we imagine, given our study of history and just paying attention, why will we imagine in a world where life eats life and there's birth and death, how could we imagine that it won't always be messy? It's always going to be messy. There's always going to be loss. We always, the heart, mind, the conditioned mind, always gets captivated by power. Whether we're in in that moment relatively low on power or relatively high on power, it affects us. It's like the one absolute drug, power. It affects who we are. Privilege, power, position, being liked, having resources, whatever it might be. And that's just our animal instincts conditioning. That's, that doesn't go away when we're an animal. <laughs> you know, as much as we may want not to be an animal, we're still an animal, part of our condition for sure. I mean, all of it, really, but, you know, there, we have this capacity to be reflectively aware of our predicament in this non-judging, balanced, stable, continuous way. And that leads to this comprehension, this understanding developing. It changes how we, we stop operating as just an animal who wants to survive at any cost. And we start, able, start being able to sort of operate, to engage from a wider, deeper perspective. You can call that love or compassion or wisdom. But it, there's nothing lost in doing that except suffering and the sort of burden of being in that limited perspective of me against the world or me against whatever. I love this line from a Zen teacher, Zen Buddhist teacher, John Tarat. He calls this uh, desire to be aware, to be present, as an intention so persevering that it becomes a kind of love. And that's really nice because it balances this other point that some of you know, Sharon Salzberg, one of our important teachers in this Western insight meditation lineage that Common Ground's part of. Uh, Sharon Salzberg a long time ago started talking about the torment of continuity. Because we're not just talking about being present and then we're done, I was present, okay. Check that one off. (laughs) You know, we're talking about 
a continuity of present moment awareness. So it, it, it really starts to feel like, I'm not sure I want to sign up for that. Do I? It's almost like initially, I mean, this is mostly our projection, but still we should acknowledge it. Like, you know how it is when all of a sudden there's a really bright light in our house or home, apartment, and we see everything. <laughs> you know, and it's like, oh, I'm not so... Or we're like looking in a mirror and there's like really good light. <laughs> and we see everything. Or our body, we're naked and we're standing in front of a full-length mirror with good light. All sides, you know, we got... <laughs> it's shocking, you know, to kind of, oh my God, this is how it is? And it's a little bit like this, especially when we, and as we should, get interested in being aware of our uh, mental activity. In a way, even though we train so much with our body, it's all actually in the service of being aware of mental activity, because that's where the whole world gets created. Hell realms, heavenly realms, and everything in between. That's where all the habits of the ways we justify contraction and causing harm to ourselves and others, all of it is happening in that realm of mental activity. The way we perceive, the way we construct feeling, pleasantness, unpleasantness, the way we make up meaning, the way we understand beliefs. That's all what we call mental activity. Ajahn Chah, this great Thai monk um, who died in the 1990s, really influential for this style of Buddhist practice coming here to the West. Um, he has this talk, which I put, by the way, in the document. So people in the room, you can find the Google Doc that has the articles that go with the Sunday morning. Just go to the calendar, the public calendar, look for the Sunday morning program, and you'll see the link to the Google Doc. And people online, you have it in the document um, that we've been posting in the chat there. And um, one of the articles that I put there is this one by Ajahn Chah called Living with the Cobra. And the cobra, as you know, is a dangerous snake. And he's using that as a simile for mental activity, like learning to be intimate, learning to be awake in a non-judgmental way with the cobra, with your mental activity. And some of it's... And the thing is, it's not just our negative mental activity that's the cobra. He goes on in this, it's a short article, I, I recommend it, maybe six pages. Um, he goes on to talk about even our wholesome mental activity, like looking around the room and thinking, oh, it's really nice being here with all these folks. Right? But it's so easy to get attached and make it more than what it is. That's just a thought being known. That doesn't mean it isn't a nice thought being known. It seems like a pretty nice thought to have, but it's still, in its essence, just a thought being known. That's that space. Because if we start taking our thoughts to be more than what they are, very quickly we get entangled. Like the Buddha said in that discourse that I read, the time it takes for your closed eyes to become open or your open eyes to become closed that's how quick we can go from this balanced, open, our hearts 
not constricted, not tight, to being in a not suffering, right? Isn't it true that, you know, we could be cruising through the day, having a good day, and something triggers some memory, maybe a humiliating memory, and all of a sudden we're a suffering being. And it was like no time. It was just like a, a moment. And the thing flipped. Where did that happy-go-lucky person go? Or it can go the other way, where we're really like so convinced that we're having a bad day, and then someone can look at us one way, you know, like a friend or whatever, and all of a sudden we feel good about life. So where did that oppressed, unhappy person go? Well, it was being constructed because the supporting causes for the unhappiness was there. And as soon as the supporting causes for the unhappiness weren't there, then that unhappiness wasn't there. And vice versa, you know, if we're happy, we're happy. So the practice is really taking us beyond the ordinary sense of happiness and unhappiness. That's why we use a different word like peace or equanimity, because it's a sense of space. It's more subtle than what we normally experience as, as happiness or unhappiness. By the way, you know, another easy image to remember that Ajahn Chah uses, again, making the same point though, is like being a log floating down a river. And one side of the river is happiness and the other side is unhappiness. And our job as the log is not to get caught on either bank, the happiness bank, identified with that, or the unhappiness bank. So as we, you know, the currents take us closer to the happiness side, we know, oh yeah, this is just happiness. And when the currents of life, causes and conditions take us to the unhappiness side, oh yeah, we know, this is unhappiness, this is what happens sometimes. There is the real pain of loss, the real pain of humiliation, the real pain of physical wounds and illness. Yeah, this is how it is. This comes with the territory of existence, just like happiness, hopefully, and joy and belonging and other pleasant experiences come our way. Not that it's fair. Some of us spend more time on the unhappiness side or the happiness side. It's not fair. But it's lawful. Lawful doesn't mean that I did something wrong in my past life and now I'm getting my just desserts. Lawful means there's nobody trying to screw with us or mess with us. Well, sometimes there is somebody <laughs> trying to mess with us. But even that is lawful. You know, like even the, like I mentioned, racism, the way that that continues in our culture, that is lawful. That doesn't mean it's right or other kinds of economic injustice where people who have a lot of wealth try to protect and, and, and not share it or not, you know, take advantage. Like, like recently, I'll just be political for a moment, certain members of our Congress, you know, voted to remove the funds from the IRS. I mean, who does that benefit? It benefits all the wealthy people who have all kinds of ways to avoid paying taxes. The news report said trillions of dollars each year, unpaid, because there's nobody at the IRS to investigate. Because, wisely from their point of view, the powers that be have worked very hard to keep their IRS as small as possible. So just an example of how power perpetuates power. And this is just, so how do we live in that world? Do we get tight about that? Where does that tightness live? Right here. Who does that help? It's definitely not helping me if I get tight about that. Does it mean that we don't do anything about it? 
No, because that kind of disengagement is its own kind of suffering. So that there's a middle ground where we we deal with what we need to deal with. We try to take care of ourselves and everybody, but we're not postponing release and peace. We're not pretending because the world's messy, the heart has to be tight. Because there's uncertainty and confusion, I should be tight. Because I'm not the person I can imagine being, I should be tight. Because I had a bad sit, I should be tight. Because I gained five pounds during the holidays, I should be tight. You know, it's like, because I know that I said something really stupid the other day to a friend. And this, I think, is the real fruit of decades of practice. You know, I apologized, you know, and, and just told the person it was just a brain freeze, which it was. I just kind of misspoke. Um, but after I left the person, I had a really good laugh because you've got to move that energy of when you see yourself do something stupid, right? Because otherwise it gets frozen. And that serene sense of humor, like, oh yeah, sometimes the mind, body says, does something that's really stupid. And if there's some amends that needs to be made, well then you could go about making the amends. But sometimes there's really nothing to do except not being afraid to feel what that feels like, to have been stupid, to have done something that human beings do, because our conditioning, if you haven't noticed, is imperfect. (laughs) Well, maybe there's an exception in the room. (laughs) No one's willing to admit it, though. (laughs) Anyway, we should leave it here. The children are going to come in in a moment. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.